0: Now we are, uh, we're in a series, and in case you missed it at the very beginning, the, the passage today is from Second Samuel, chapter nine. It, it is there in your notes, um, and so you can follow along there. Uh, But we're in a a series called Learning How to Love, and we're just looking at different aspects of love. And and last week, we got to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is known as the love chapter, but very seldom do we look at it theologically. Very seldom do we sort of dive in the way we did last week, and I loved to do that. My study last week was just a blast uh, to be able to go into all of the facets of what it means for, for love to be the most important way that we can grow. Now, it's valuable for us to have Spiritual gifts, it's valuable for us to have knowledge, knowledge of scripture, knowledge of God. But if we are not growing in love, then we are not growing in any way that really matters. Um, And that's what last week was all about, because love is the only thing that we are going to take into eternity. Now, in the New Testament, the highest form of love, or the word that is used most often for love, is the word agape. And we've talked about this before. Agape is more than a feeling, but it is the commitment to seek the good of the other first. It's a, a, a ruthless and rugged sort of love, not the kind that we often talk about in our society that, that tends to be sort of romanticized. And, uh, and agape is something that goes even beyond loving our neighbor to loving our enemies. And that's what we looked at the first week when we looked at the story of Jonah. Okay, so the New Testament word is the word agape. Today, we're going to look at the Old Testament word for the highest form of love. And uh, and it characterizes it by a word that is uh, by, the, by the Hebrew word hesed. Now, hesed is used 248 times in the Old Testament. Um, and it has a range of meaning, but the two main meanings for hased is, is, first of all, uh, can be sort of characterized in the NIV when it's translated as something like steadfast or unfailing love. Sometimes it's translated as faithfulness. Uh, theologians, when they talk about Hased, they, they call it covenant love. Um, and it's a, a sort of rugged commitment to relationship no matter the cost. And, uh, and, and the second idea in hesed is the idea of mercy. And so when we see, for instance, in Psalm 23, where, where uh, the psalmist writes, Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word mercy is actually the word hesed. and, And it's the kind of love that is oftentimes expressed or most exemplified, or someone is in a vulnerable situation, which is why oftentimes it's translated as kindness or goodness. Okay, now, David knew God's has said. Uh, very well. Uh, So for instance, when the prophet Nathan confronted him after his sin of of taking Bathsheba and then killing Uriah, he he writes this in Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, so we know that David understood the Hesed of God, because the the story that we're going to look at today is a perfect example of him. Uh, embodying what has said is all about. And like I said, the story itself comes from 2 Samuel chapter 9, but in order to fully understand the story, we actually have to go back a little bit further and get some context from it. And, and so uh, we have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, to when David was younger. In fact, when he was a teenager. Now, a little background here, Saul already knew that God had rejected him as king because of his disobedience. But he was actually determined to hold on to the throne uh, as long as he could. But he didn't know at the time that David had uh that, that he had already anointed David as the next king of Israel. He hadn't he hadn't told Saul that. And uh and so Um, In an interesting sort of plot twist, Saul was actually becoming more and more paranoid and he was more uh, more committed to uh, holding on to his throne. And, and he also suffered from what the Bible calls uh, an evil spirit from the Lord. Now, it could be that there was actually a spirit, or it could be, uh, many people say that it, this was just an idiom for the way they used to explain things like mental illness um, in the Bible in biblical times, depression, anxiety, or in Saul's case, in, in Saul's case a, a, a sense of, of paranoia or a case of paranoia. But in any case, someone in Saul's court suggested that they find a lyre player um, in order to soothe him whenever this spirit came over him. In other words, whenever he became troubled. And it just so happened that David played the lyre. And so he was enlisted to play for Saul when his spirit became troubled. Well, because he spent so much time in Saul's court, he quickly became very good friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, they were such good friends that that they formed what is called a covenant with each other. And, And a covenant was a common ceremony in ancient times where either business partners or close friends would want to have some sort of official relationship, and it would actually be a legal arrangement that they would make with each other in order to pledge their fidelity to each other. And the idea is similar to back in the day, uh, and I don't know if you ever did this, when, uh, when people would become blood brothers. They would say, we are going to be brothers forever. Um, now, that wasn't legally binding, and so it was actually much stronger than that. But it's that same sort of idea. It became, they became sort of legal, voluntary family. Uh, And in fact, their relationship is is described very intimately, even to the point where it makes some people uncomfortable, and that that there are some people who say, uh, you know, it's very difficult for us to think about uh, that kind of intimacy without thinking uh, about sex, you know, because our society just kind of does that to us. But there was nothing sexual about David and Jonathan's relationship. It was just a very close friendship, and, uh, and you might say they were brothers from another mother, right? Something like that. Okay. Very, very strong bond. Well, after David killed Goliath, he became a national hero and uh, Saul became jealous of him. And any time an evil spirit would come upon Saul, he would try to kill David, which of course creates a really awkward situation. Uh, imagine your dad trying to kill your best friend in the world. You imagine it probably could create some issues uh, between the two of you. Uh, And at first, Jonathan didn't really want to believe it. He thought, oh, you're just misunderstanding the situation. But eventually it became uh, clear, just way too obvious to ignore. And so Jonathan made a pledge that he would do everything that he could to protect David from his father. Well, as they're developing their plan to protect David from Saul, uh, Jonathan sees the writing on the wall. He sees that things are not going to end well for his father. Things are probably not going to end well for him too, and so he asks, asks David to swear an oath to him. And here's the oath from 1 Samuel uh, chapter twenty, verse fourteen. And he says, "Show me unfailing kindness." In other words, show me hesed like that of the Lord as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your chesed from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And David agrees. He makes the oath. Well, eventually Jonathan is killed in battle, and Saul actually takes his own life, which opened the door for David to become the king of Israel. Now, when we get to our passage today, David has actually been king for a while. Uh, he was king, and he went through his first 100 days agenda. You know, they talk about that with the president. Only it took, actually, a lot longer. We'll find out that the, that the time frame is much, much longer than it appears. But, but basically what he does is he gets rid of his rivals, he subdues his enemies, and he establishes his throne. And once he does that, it shows David just sort of sitting down, And a few years into his reign, he remembers the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. And so he just asks the court, all of the people who are standing in the court at the time, he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, what's remarkable about this is that Saul had spent the last few years of his life actually hunting David down pursuing him to try to kill him. It, it, may, it became almost his singular goal in life in order to do that. And yet, David's Hesed, his oath, his covenant, his promise to Jonathan was so powerful that it extended all the way through Saul's family, even after he was dead. Now, this is amazing when you think about it. Okay, typically, the new king would go to great lengths to try to wipe out any rivals to the throne. In fact, that's somewhat what Saul was doing with David, trying to, to wipe out a rival to the throne. But David's promise, his hased, was so strong that it overrode all of these cultural expectations that they had. Well, the, the people in his court summoned one of Saul's former servants named Zeba he knew the, the house of Saul very well. And, uh, and, and so they called him to appear before David. And David asked him directly in verse 3. He says, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Again, the word there is hased kindness. David wants to show hased to the house of Saul. And Ziba responds at the end of verse 3. He says, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Now, of course, he was talking about Mephibosheth. Now, I'm not exactly sure why Ziba had to add this detail that he was lame in both legs. But I could probably guess. I mean, certainly Ziba knows that new kings, what, what new kings do to the old regime. And I think he kind of wants to send the message to David that, hey, there, there is one more. But, you know, he's not really a threat to you. He wants to make sure that David knows that. He wants to take care of Mephibosheth. But in any case, what we see here is that Mephibosheth's identity, his very identity became tied up with his disability. It became his primary identity. You know, he wasn't the guy with the keen wit or the organizational ability. You know, when you were talking about Mephibosheth, someone would ask, well, who are you talking about? We say, oh, you know, he's the guy who's lame in both feet. That's what he became known as. Now, of course, that would be significant today. But in David's day, there actually would have been an additional stigma attached to that. People with disabilities were usually associated with sin and punishment and and chronic diseases and disability were often, you know, people who had those things were often assumed to have done something to deserve it. And so you didn't necessarily offer them kindness. You just kind of stayed away from them because they're not the kind of people that you want to hang out with. You know, if they're the ones who do enough to be able to deserve this, you should stay away from them. And so they weren't allowed to worship the way everyone else was, and they were sort of excluded from society. Which makes David's actions here even more amazing, because his commitment and his oath to Jonathan caused him to disregard all of the social conventions of the day. And so David sends for Mephibosheth. And and you can imagine what Mephibosheth might be thinking at this moment. He knows what new kings do to the family of the old kings. And so he probably, when David's men came to get him, probably started saying goodbye to his family, to his wife and his kids, and the the guy whose house that he was living in at the time. Uh, And, uh, you know, he... I guess I was going to say starts the long walk, but they would probably have to carry him or, you know, in a, in a chariot or something. I don't know how they would get him there. Uh, but he appears in David's court and he bows like he should, um, expecting to get the axe. But instead, what does he get? Look at verse 7. David says, Don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table. He expected death and rightly so, but instead, almost the very opposite happened. He actually received his life back. What happened? Well, David restored, him, restored all the land that belonged to Saul. Okay? Now, he had been living on someone else's land, a guy named Makir, And uh, And and it wasn't great land. It was actually in a place called Lodabar, which literally means a desolate place. And and what we see is is that he was sort of in self-imposed exile. He was away from everyone else on a desolate land where no one else would look for him. But now he would live on king's land, right? It wasn't very far from Jerusalem, about three miles from Jerusalem. And it was prime land that was owned by the former king. I mean, kings don't own desolate places, right? They own the best. The second thing is is that David gave him the right to eat at the king's table always. And what this did was this completely reversed Mephibosheth's standing in society. You know, before he was in self-imposed exile, away from society and looked down on by everyone else, now he was eating at the king's table. You know who gets to eat at the king's table? Important people, that's who, right? Somebodies eat at the king's table. And now people start to ask, well, well, who's, who's Mephibosheth? Oh, he's the guy that eats at the king's table. He's a friend of the king. And the third thing is, is that David provided him with a contingent of servant, servants, including Ziba. Probably Ziba was thinking, I should have just kept my mouth shut, right? <laughs> Uh, but, but basically provided him and all of his servants to farm the land to be able to provide for Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. Okay? This was a major reversal of fortune for Mephibosheth, and all because David kept his promise, not to Mephibosheth, but to Jonathan. Think about that. David not only kept his promise, but he went above and beyond even when it wasn't convenient for him to do so. All right, so the question is, we're talking about love, why am I now talking about promises? Well, it's because this is actually one of the quintessential pictures of Hesed from a human perspective in the Bible. Making and keeping promises. But making and keeping promises is kind of hard in our society today. And I wanted to think a little bit about it. Like, why is that? Why does it seem to be such a hard thing? Why does it seem to be so uncommon today? Well, my guess is is that if you asked 10 people today to describe love, the idea of keeping your promises probably would not be a part of their description. Probably not even for one of them. But actually, making and keeping promises used to be a core part of what love was. It used to be one of the core virtues of life and one of the most basic acts of life. In fact, one of the best things that you could say about someone is he's a man of his word. You know, when he says something, he is going to do it. In the past, we valued things like loyalty and faithfulness. Now we value freedom and openness and spontaneity. We've changed from the idea of doing my duty to doing what works for me. And now I'm starting to sound like a grumpy old man, right? (laughs) Get off my lawn. (laughs) What I'm saying is, is that making and keeping our promises is hard today because we live in a day where it's not promoted and it's not encouraged as much as it used to be. In fact, choice might be one of the primary virtues of our society. Because we like to keep our options open just in case something better comes along. We do this with events. We do this with churches. We even do it with marriages. Keep our options open in case something better comes along. In Christine Pohl's book, Living into Community, she actually identifies making and keeping promises as one of the four virtues that undergird communities. In other words, in order to have a healthy community, you have to have people who make and keep promises. And she said she's noticed over the last few years, she has a friend, a young friend, who has some, uh, that, that, uh, that this is the case even with, uh, the difficulty in committing to social engagement. She said that she has a young friend of hers who has a tight-knit friend group who very seldom makes plans ahead of times. You know, they might talk about, hey, on Friday, we're thinking about doing this, but they never firm it up until right before the event. And, and, and they always make this sort of te- tentative plans, uh, never firm it up until the last minute because there might be something else that might come along that will be a better opportunity. And, and she writes something, she said something that's very interesting. She says that, yes, there is value in spontaneity, and all of us, to some degree, like to be spontaneous and keep our options open. But she says this. She says, because our experience of being chosen is just as important to us as being able to choose, this has the potential to undermine relationship in significant ways. Now think about that. In other words, what she's saying is is that having options is great until your friend decides to choose a better option than you. Making and keeping our promises actually runs against the grain of our society because when we make promises, we intentionally limit our choices for the sake of other people. We don't typically associate love with making and keeping promises, but there may have never been a time where this virtue is more important and more loving than it is today. And let me give you three reasons why it's so important. First, it's because promise-making and promise-keeping bring stability to a world that is constantly changing. You might have noticed that it's hard to count on anything these days. And especially during COVID, where things are changing all the time based on numbers on a graph. And I think rightfully so. I think we need to pay attention to those things. But we're constantly adjusting, constantly having to change. And it just seems like there is very few things that we can count on anymore in life. And we're starting to see this have an effect on people, starting to take its toll. When we see this uh, increase in things like disconnection and anxiety and depression and loneliness... And of course, some of it can be attributed to the fact that even spontaneous people need things that they can count on. We need to have some level of predictability and routine, especially when it comes to people in our lives. We need to know that our friend or family member's love for us is not based on our performance in the relationship. Now, of course, we should try to be a good friend and family member and church member or whatever, But it can be exhausting to constantly have to work to be better than everyone else for fear that our friends are going to choose someone else or be better than the church down the street. You know, we need people in our life that we can count on to be there through thick and thin. And one of the most loving character traits that you can cultivate is to be someone who says, I will be there no matter what. And what we find then is, is that promises bind us to the people that we love. And that was the heart of David and Jonathan's relationship. They went through some struggles, no doubt about it. I'm guessing that you've probably never had a friend's dad try to kill you. And the pressure for David and Jonathan to go their separate ways and find easier relationships was immense. And yet they stayed faithful to each other. David stayed faithful to his promise, even though there was nothing really in it for him. And in fact, it cost him something. What is kind and loving is being someone that other people can count on. When life is too heavy for them, they can count on you to be there to carry the burden. And our willingness to make and to keep promises is a deep act of love. Uh, Lewis Smeads says that in making a promise, you freely tie yourself down so that other persons can be free to trust that you will keep your promise to them. Promises bring stability. The second reason this is so important is that making and keeping promises creates an environment where we can grow in love. Last week we talked about growing in love and how important it is. It's actually the most important thing. Okay? And, I, and I've talked about this often, that real biblical love is not about how we feel in the moment. It's about an enduring commitment to the good of the other person. And a good illustration of this, we see this in Philippians chapter two, where the apostle Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he tells us to look at Jesus as our example. And he goes on to describe how Jesus had every privilege and every option available to him, and he gave them up, for our sake, and then he says, "Now we should do as He did to be willing to limit our options for the sake of other people. Now, Jesus didn't have to learn how to do this. It was part of God's nature, and in fact, there are some things in that passage in Philippians chapter two that, that actually indicate that that Jesus did this not despite the fact that he was God, but actually because he was God, that this is the nature of God to limit himself for the sake of others. But we have to learn how to do it because we are born into a fallen world and, uh, and we are naturally selfish creatures. But promising, making and keeping promises actually helps us to grow in love and here's how. If you want to get better at running, if you want to increase your lung capacity or your muscle endurance, then you have to spend some time pushing yourself beyond what is comfortable. In fact, if you're not willing to push yourself even a little bit, it will be hard for you to maintain your current level of endurance. And that means that you have to limit your options in other areas. You have to go out for a run when you would rather be doing something else. You have to limit what you eat. You have to stop smoking or you know whatever other bad habit that you do that's going to drain your endurance. You have to limit your options. And in the same way, you cannot grow in love if you always have to be emotionally comfortable. As much as we'd like to think that doing Bible studies with our friends and listening to sermons that tell us what we want to hear or what we already believe, uh, as much as we'd like to think that those things make us grow, the truth is it's not enough. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is from marriage and the other is from the church. Now, I know that not everyone is married, not everyone will be married, but I actually believe that marriage is one of the best discipleship opportunities that we can have. See, the biblical understanding of marriage is, is that when you get married, that you are in it for life. Okay, That you, your options are, are gone. In fact, you could say that marriage, by definition, is a promise. I'm gonna do a wedding on, on Saturday and they're gonna stand up there and they're gonna say these vows to each other. They're gonna say, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Limiting their options, making a promise to each other. Okay? And I know that there are times when you will not feel like keeping that promise. I know that there will be times when it'll get hard. You might even wonder if you did the right thing when you stood up at that altar and you made that promise to each other. Now, if you have our society's understanding of marriage as a romantic relationship that's intended to make you happy, then when life gets hard, you're gonna look for better options that will actually fulfill that purpose. But the problem with this idea of marriage is that it never requires us to look in the mirror and to change. But when you see marriage as a promise, then working it out is your only option. Which means that your openness to changing yourself is critical. To develop the mental and emotional strength to be someone who is better able to seek the good of the other, even when they're not making things easy for you. And it forces you to decide between character and comfort. And it can be a similar thing in the church as well. You see, we believe that a church is more than just you know, a worship service where individuals come together and we just happen to kind of like the same worship service. Okay? A church is a discipleship training ground for the same reason that a marriage is. If we see a church as a, simply as a place of fulfillment, intending to make us happy or reinforce what we already believe, then as soon as we start to hear things we don't like, we threaten to go somewhere else that will tell us what we do. Or when there's someone in the church that we have a hard time getting along with, rather than doing the hard work of reconciliation and forgiveness, we just move on where we think the relationships will be easier. And we move on, and we move on, and we move on. Now next, work, next week, we're actually going to look into the idea of speaking the truth in love. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit. What does that mean to, to work out these relationships? Okay? But today, what I hope you see is that for a church community to be a place of actual growth, for a church community to be a place of growth in love, then it also has to be a place where people trust one another. Which means that it has to be a place where we make promises to each other and we keep them. And that can be incredibly difficult. But it's only when we make and keep promises to work it out with each other that the church can be transformed into an environment where we can actually grow in love. Finally, the reason this is so important is that when we make and keep promises, we become like our Heavenly Father. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, where where David takes the oath first, this is how Jonathan says it. He says, But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live. Do you see that there? Like the Lord's kindness. And then when David asks if there is any, any of Jonathan's descendants, notice how he asks it in verse 3. He says, Is there no one still alive from the, sou- ha- from the house of Saul to whom I can show what? God's kindness. You see, they saw themselves simply as a conduit of God's kindness, of God's chesed to one another. Our call to covenant love is modeled after God's covenant love for us. You see, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of broken relationship. We live in broken relationship to God, in broken relationship with each other. And it, and it started that way all the way back with Adam and Eve. But the Bible tells us that God is redeeming his world, and he's redeeming his world through making promises. In fact, over and over in Scripture, we see this picture of a God who continually binds himself to sinful humanity. See, of the 248 times that the Old Testament uses the word has said, the vast majority of them are used, uh, refers to God's covenant love toward his people. So, for instance, we see it in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It says the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, keeping chesed for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means cleared the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then we see it in Jonah 4.2, the passage that we looked at the first week. Where Jonah says, hey, this is the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Because I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, A God who relents from sending calamity. God is always true to his character and he always keeps his promises. God made a promise to Adam and Eve. He made a promise to Cain. He made a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Abraham that he would bless the world through his descendants. He promised the people of Israel that if they were faithful to him, that he would be faithful to them. They were unfaithful and he was still faithful. When Israel was hopeless and in exile, God promised to send a Messiah to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham 1,500 years before. This is how long God keeps his promises. And then we saw it happen in Jesus. And Jesus himself made promises to us where he says, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In fact, when we open our Bibles, it's divided into two sections, the old promise and the new promise. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is the yes and amen to all of the promises that God made to us. You see, in the end, what gives us the confidence to be promise makers and promise keepers is that we have a God that we can trust because God has bound himself to us. And he has asked us to do the same for him and for the people around us. God, we want to thank you that you are a promise maker and a promise keeper. And oftentimes we don't really think about you that way because we have this tendency to think that when we mess up, that, that we're just afraid that you're gonna leave, that you're gonna abandon us. But God, you've promised that you will never do that, that you will not abandon your people. and That when we confess our sins, you are faithful and you're just and you'll forgive us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, I pray that because you make promises to us, that we would be willing to show love by being willing to make promises and keep them for the people around us. That we would see this as a big part of what we do as people. And God, as we think about, as we sing about your faithfulness to us, God, I pray that it would do something in our hearts, that it would transfer, and that we would see ourselves as conduits of your promise that you have made to us, the promise that you have made to the people around us. May we live lives of promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.